everybody. Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. I'm Kira Smith, and today we're having a live expert interview panel in honor of Blood Cancer Awareness Month. So I'm joined by one of our editorial board members, Dr. Rahul Banerjee, who is an assistant professor at the University of Washington, and he'll be speaking with Dr. A.J. Major, who is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado. And today they'll be discussing patient-reported outcomes in lymphoma and myeloma. So with that, I'll turn it over to you. So Dr. Banerjee, take it away. Okay. Thank you, Kira and Dr. Major. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for um, having me. Dr. Major, uh, as uh, Kira mentioned, you know, he's, uh, his expertise is in blood cancers, in particular patients with lymphoma and myeloma, and his research expertise is in patient-reported outcomes. So we'll call them PROs for the purpose of this interview. You know, I know, for example, and we'll have a transcript after this uh, talk available for those following along, but he did a really nice, uh, he led a very nice analysis of PROs neuropathy among patients with myeloma using data from the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. I know it has a couple other PR-related papers on their works. So Dr. Major, again, pleasure. Thank you again for coming on the show with us. Thanks, happy to be here. So maybe we could start, I always ask everybody, this is my first question, you know, when you look at an abstract or a paper or anything that just has PRO data involved, embedded into it, or talks about it, what are the things that you look for? You know, what makes, uh, you know, something a great PRO study versus a mediocre PRO study versus, you know, honestly a lousy PRO-based study? I don't know. I don't really believe there's any lousy PRO studies. And the caveat I'll add is because, you know, in, in the blood cancer space, I mean, PROs are fairly new. I mean, we finally have good enough therapies that we can actually start to talk about many of these, uh, you know, diseases as chronic diseases that we need to think about quality of life and how tolerable our therapies are. But, you know, I think there's two big things that I look for. The first is a really good statistical plan. So just like when you're designing, you know, a phase one, phase two, whatever trial, you know, you really think about, you're going to do a three plus three design, and you're going to do a Bayesian design, like really methodically thinking about how you're going to be constructing your study. That exact same concept applies to PRO studies, right? You have to think about, what is the po patient population you're studying? What is the time frame over which you're studying it? What do you expect to happen to their quality of life or their symptom burden as, as a result of their uh, treatment? And then you have to really, what I also look for is a really good hypothesis, right? Like uh, we hypothesize that quality of life will change in X, Y, Z way based on how we give X, Y, Z treatment. And based on that and a, a good understanding of the cohort that you're studying in, this, in, in that particular uh, trial, designing and seeing that the PROs have been designed to really answer that specific question. I do see sometimes that people throw in, you know, a, a PRO instrument is kind of like an afterthought and well, we're going to collect it. And, you know, collection of PRO data, in my opinion, right now is good in a lot of settings. I mean, we should be doing it in, across the trial setting, across observational studies, clinical trials, of course. But, you know, the problem with that is that you don't really know what you're looking at. So that's what I really look for is a good hypothesis. I think I the that. Yeah, the other big component I look for is seeing that the data has been presented with some granularity when it comes to PROs. And this is informed by some research other groups have been doing, but actually some, some research our group has been doing too, is that just reporting someone's change in their overall or global quality of life, which you see a lot reported in studies because that's, you know, it, it feels easier to kind of get a handle on. It's like, oh, we know overall their quality of life did this, you know, based on this treatment. But really, when you report just global quality of life, you are missing some of the granularity about what actually happens to symptom burden. So we have an abstract that will hopefully be coming out at ASH soon, where we looked at patients with myeloma, and we looked at how their global quality of life changed during induction with carfilzomib-based therapies. And what we found is that overall quality of life actually was the same over that treatment period, but using the instrument we use, which is one of the EORTC instruments, 
which actually looked specifically at disease-related symptoms versus side effects from therapy. We actually found that side effects from therapy precipitously increased over the first couple of weeks and then decreased to baseline by six months. And disease-related symptoms precipitously decreased over the treatment period. So those kind of canceled each other out and represented a global quality of life that was completely unchanged. But for patients, there were clearly dynamic changes going on and what was happening with their symptom burden. So, uh, you know, I think we talk, um, I think it's going to be in the notes about the Zuma 7 study, which used the EORTC instruments, you know, one of the big CAR-T studies. And what I liked about that study is in their supplement, they included all of the individual domains that they used for the PRO instrument, you know, nausea, vomiting, financial toxicity, all of that was included. You really have to capture all of that and present all of that in your paper to really get a good understanding of when we counsel patients, what's going to happen with them? Because I tell people with myeloma now, if I'm treating them with carfilzomib up front, you know, listen, you're going to have some more side effects that we think will resolve, but your treatment related, you know, your disease related symptoms will get better. I think that's important to set expectations for patients. And also super helpful, especially with blood cancers, as you know, as well as I do, you know, like the fatigue is so hard to tell. Is this from the anemia from the myeloma or is it the fatigue from the lenalidomide that they're on? And I think yep. having these kind of longitudinal bigger studies where people have been able to kind of suss this out bit by bit or adjust for lenalidomide dose adjustments or for duration, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I will ask then, you know, because the other thing that I sometimes see with PRO studies is when people say that, you know, that basically in my mind, statistical significance and PROs are much less important than clinical significance in terms of clinically important differences and so forth. Can you speak a bit about to that, a bit, bit about that in terms of how you look at what actually is a meaningful change on a PRO mm-hmm. instrument for a patient? Yeah, you're you're opening the Pandora's box in the PRO space, which is a good thing. You know, this whole entity, which some people have called, you know, MCID minimally clinically important difference or minimally important difference, the MID, you know, it's something that has been a predominant focus in the PRO space, actually more on the surgical side. Interesting. There's a lot of surgical literature in PROs looking at, you know, results from hip replacements or knee replacements where they want to attribute some change in a patient's symptoms with the value or the quality of whatever particular surgical intervention they went under. So in the, in the, especially in the orthopedic space, there's been a lot of like, you know, what exactly is that difference for per patient, but also looking in aggregate at, you know, a mean of an entire patient cohort that represents what patients think is clinically significant. I don't know how helpful that is in, in, a, in, a, in a blood cancer space with therapeutics. And that's partially because it's really nuanced, right? You know, each minimally important difference, I mean, a PR, a single PRO instrument can have multiple, multiple different uh, minimally important differences based on not only the patient population you're studying, but also the patient setting, right? If we're looking at what is the minimally important difference for, you know, multiple myeloma in frontline versus in the first relapse setting. We presume that that change for patients in terms of what feels better for them overall is probably different. On top of the fact that um, the, you know, that minimally important difference also differs based on, of course, the therapy, but it also differs based on time, right? So, you know, if you're looking at a difference between zero months and six months in a patient with myeloma, who, by the way, might be undergoing an autologous transplant versus zero months and three months when they're still going to be on induction, that minimally important difference is also going to be different. So it can get really in the weeds of how, you know, we look at that. I think they're less useful, except in one scenario. There's a couple different ways to generate a minimally important difference. Some people do a distribution-based model and the classic, there's a paper, I think, from 2004 that everyone cites that you know, a half standard deviation difference, which of course is dependent on your sample size and whatever, you know, is considered to be minimally important, different, fine. 
But there's another strategy of doing it where you do something called anchor-based um, generation of minimally important difference, where basically you directly ask questions uh, to patients, basically saying what we call the patient global impression of change, where we just ask patients in the same study, how do you feel like your health has improved or worsened since you started therapy or since your last appointment? And so you can say like, that allows you to stratify internally within the study and say, look, the patients that said that since they got their CAR T or whatever, that they had a significant improvement, here's how their quantitative PRO instrument changed or their scores changed versus the patients that said, gosh, doc, I'm doing way worse than I got the CAR T and then seeing how that difference is. So I kind of like that model better. And it's pretty simple to put in studies. It's literally one or two questions because it allows you to anchor that, you know, it allows you to internally determine what the minimally important difference is within your study group. And that allows you to less rely on like, you know, oh, this minimally important difference study was done in a different country. We don't know if the pay, you know, it's an internal way of doing it, I think is more helpful. But I think people often get lost of like, oh, it, it, did we meet the five point, you know, minimally important difference for the promise? I don't know. You know, I think there's easier ways of, of, of looking Agreed. at that. Or, or worse, like, oh, we had four points. Can I find a citation that says that four points is fair right. game? Right. I'll admit that I actually hadn't heard of the anchor-based approach, and that's brilliant. Almost like a, it's like a patient-reported assessment of a patient-reported outcome. Exactly. You know, of like what level actually makes a difference to them. Um, and I, you know, obviously we're talking about all cancer, all blood cancers here. I mean, I think you know myelofibrosis is a great example where rexolitinib yep. drastically decreases the spleen size, and I think that's obviously clear as day, both clinically and statistically significant. But I'm sure that would be a good example where, you know spleen size by CT is one thing, but having a patient say that, look, I feel so much better. I can eat more. My belly isn't as bloated. It's just huge and way more meaningful. Yeah. And there's, you know, the other, the other reason I add a caveat with the minimally important difference, which I think is important is that the cutoffs for what's minimally important are different if you're looking at a mean score. So if you're taking hundred patients, looking at their mean, you know, zero, three, six months out, whatever, you know, that minimally important difference is going to be lower than what's actually meaningful for an individual patient. So there's been some research that's been done and basically like if you were to implement PROs in more of a routine clinical environment, like what individual patient change is probably significant. And that's very different. And so that's the other reason that I think there's an academic approach to like, you know, do we think this therapy overall improves someone's, you know, like I said, myofibromas fatigue, spleen size, what have you. But for an individual patient, absolutely, they may have a what would not be considered to be that minimally important difference, but if they clinically feel better, great. And so, you know, getting into, if you were ever were to implement PROs in clinic, which obviously there's a lot of research and that's a whole, you know, other kind of area of implementation science, but it's a simple question. Um, actually, doctor, there's a group um, at Mayo that just published a paper on um, a, a, a novel question, which is, uh, was it worth it? Which I love, right? It's a simple question, very poignant, but something you could really ask patients in the clinical environment so easily and get a sense of like, you know, did the therapy they go through, was it worth it? And how does that correlate with the changes in the PRO scores? Agreed. Because that also takes into account some of the expectations they had for this therapy and kind of where they ended up, which I think is also a, a very real world thing mm -hmm. that our patients kind of think about and want to know about. Um, so maybe then I can ask you, you touched on transplant a little bit. We talked about the ZoomSF and CAR-T analysis. And I think, you know, difficulty with transplant and CAR-T, with all of our therapies, especially with transplant and CAR-T is this roller coaster that you expect of the yes. acute period of toxicity versus a chronic period. And when you collect PROs across that range, I'm sure that, 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 you know, the curves that, uh, of the curve, so to speak, make things complicated. Can you talk about, you know, what you think, where you think the field is headed in terms of longitudinal PROs or mm, yeah, yeah. things that you look for when you see a study of longitudinal PROs in terms of understanding 
how to make sense of them from a patient or a physician perspective. Yeah, and you know, Grant, I'm not a biostatistician because I mean, longitudinal analysis is its own. You know, it's there's, there's really some there's books on it, right? But you know, again, I think it comes down to really thinking about what are you looking for in the patient population that you're studying, and how does that? How do you use your long? Because you know, you remember a great point. CAR T is the class example. So is transplant. Where like. I mean, a lot of the uh, CAR T says have found, you know, at their three month PROs, they're worse, right? Especially, you know, in the ones that compared CAR T to transplant, you know, and for example, in DLBCL is like, of course, people are going to feel worse in three months during recovery. And we would expect to see, you know, some sort of rebound and they have found that by six months, people are feeling better. So in that scenario, doing like a, you know, repeated measures, ANOVA or something like, are you missing some of that, you know, dynamic change in, in their quality of life? You might be, Right. Um, I know, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this time to deterioration, which is like a Kaplan-Meier way of kind of visualizing where the percentage of patients that hit some sort of established cutoff or when they are, their quality of life is deteriorated. I think the problem I have with that is it works in some settings, right? For example, in metastatic solid tumors, right? That might work because our expectation is that you know, at some point, the therapies are going to stop working, the cumulative toxicity will get too much, there's probably not as much of that dynamic change, there might be for some of the novel therapies in solid tumors, for sure, right. But, you know, we might be saying, like, if we give you a therapy in a metastatic solid tumor setting, you know, we do want to see a point at where you have some sort of set off improvement that is faster than whatever other, you know, placebo or whatever other arm you're looking at. I don't know, and that may work in some, you know, um, some of the hematological limitations too, but some of that dynamic change, I think is a little bit more complicated. So looking at kind of individual means at time points has obviously been done. I'm a big fan of general, generalized linear mixed methods because it allows you to actually model, you know, looking at, you know, taking into account random effects, what each, you know, all the individual patients are kind of doing over time. And it also allows you to enter, um, you know, in kind of a multivariable way, covariates that might help you determine, are there patient populations that actually might have changes um, that are not being represented by the aggregate? So we have a paper coming out, um, hopefully soon, where we looked at how quality of life changes in, in patients with chronic lymphomas who are actually under a watch and wait or an active surveillance strategy. Our hypothesis was, you know, or, or what the question we were looking at is, do patients really have a totally retained quality of life over time when they're on active surveillance? Because obviously a lot of patients talk about watch and worry, totally valid. What, you know, what's their quality of life doing? And in the, in, if, if you look at aggregate, aggregate by repeated measures ANOVA, you know, over a three-year period, there was no difference. But when you do a, um, a generalized linear mixed method model, you actually tease out that there are gender differences and how quality of life changes and actually differences in people who had existing comorbidities, which is really fascinating. People who had existing comorbidities yeah. actually had... Um, at least a better initial quality of life. And that's because, you know, when you have comorbidities and anybody outside of the cancer space, they often amass more social capital surrounding that versus people who had no more comorbidities are diagnosed with a new cancer or chronic lymphoma and initially don't have that kind of social capital that they need to kind of support their overall quality of life. So that's an example, right? Of like, you got to pick the right longitudinal kind of way to think about the data based on what you're studying. That is fascinating. I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing that paper. I, I totally, totally agree. And I think it's a good reminder, kind of the first thing you said you know, in terms of, you know, biostats is a, probably one of the most important components of PRO analysis. So as you're designing a PRO study for us as junior faculty in the field, you're having biostats faculty input into just both the instruments and how you analyze them and how you actually report them, I think is super important. I think the other 
big source of angst, I think, for all of us, and you can speak to this better than I can, is just the sheer number of PRO instruments that are out there for anything. So, I mean, I think that's a a little daunting, right? Because then it's very hard to compare them. I don't know which one to use. I don't know how much it's going to cost. So maybe we can delve into quality of life, which you had talked about. You mentioned the Q5D, for example, an example of a PRO instrument that you use. So many out there, so many ways to look at quality of life. You know, what are what are you a fan of? Or where do you think the field is going to be headed in five years um, across, ideally across blood cancers um, in general, but if not particularly in lymphoma, particularly in myeloma? Yeah, yeah you know, I... Uh, uh, <laughs> I used to be not a, I'm a convert to the promise instruments. And I think you probably are too. <laughs> As someone who works in the cellular therapy space. Yeah. You know, but again, I think, and I hate to, you know, to keep getting to this point, but it really depends on what you're trying to study. I do think that most studies now, especially in hematological malignancies, probably should include at least some degree of the promise instruments. And that's because the promise instruments are generic. And by generic, what we mean is that you know, they're not disease specific. And so they can look at overall quality of life as well as specific domains of quality of life. And you can compare them across therapies, you know, without having to kind of account for some of the disease related characteristics. And so, you know, especially in blood cancers, which obviously, you know, in the cellular therapy space, you know, we're being inundated with new therapies. I mean, you know, all sorts of new CAR T construct by specifics, what have you. And so it's impossible to design new PRO instruments that like there's a bi-specific instrument and a CAR T with this contract instrument, like that's not possible. So I think promise instruments probably should be included in some way in most of these key malignancy studies, because they allow us to look at quality of life between all these different unusual new types of therapies. That being said, you know, if the study that you're looking at is looking to see how disease related symptoms change, for example, in myeloma, that's a little bit tougher to do with the promise instruments because the premise uh, kind of whole framework is designed that you can pull individual questions, you can kind of design your own instrument. And that's obviously fine to do, but it can be tough to say, you know, do I want to pull, let's see, what pain instruments do I want to use if it's a myeloma related bone pain, or how does that differ from, you know, that can be a little bit challenging. So I think some of the other instruments, for example, the EORTC or instruments or the FACT or facet groups instruments, especially ones that are specific to lymphoma, like the FACT limb or the EORTC MY20, which is specific for myeloma. I think those can and, and should still be incorporated into studies with promise added as well, because it serves two purposes. One, it allows you to answer some of the, again, granularity about the disease related symptoms, but also it allows you within the study to start to look at comparisons between these instruments and the new promise instruments, which if the field goes the way I think it's going to go, we're probably going to switch using promise only and being able to validate and see that like, oh, this lymphoma specific instrument, you know, has good enough agreement with the promise instruments that we feel like we can use it to start to look at those symptoms, I think is going to be, is going to be key. I love that. I totally agree. Yeah. And just to familiarize the audience, you have, don't know what we're talking about. So promise without the E. So P-R-O-M-I-S, <laughs> these kind of a NIH kind of a blessed or I think designed really uh, instruments that could look at it from global health, quality of life to you know, sleep to anxiety and more. And then, you know, um, I guess, are you familiar with the PROCTCAE as well? Can you speak yes, to those? And actually, things? I'm glad you bring that up because another construct that's happening in the PRO space, which is attempting to address some of this issue is this new kind of construct that we call tolerability. And what tolerability is, is there's a lot of discussion right now in the PRO community about what this means because you know, to your point, a lot of clinical trialists are saying, okay, PROs are important, but like, how on earth do we incorporate those into a study? And so there is some pressure to come up with a uniform construct for how we do this, especially in the clinical trial setting. And that's what tolerability is. Tolerability is this construct that, you know, basically reflects that patients, you know, 
And this comes actually, it was informed very much by patient advocacy groups, which is great, saying, listen, there are therapies that we are willing to tolerate some of the side effects from knowing that we're going to get some sort of XYZ benefit down the way. And so tolerability thus far as it's been defined is a combination of physical functioning, role or soul, uh, social functioning, disease-related symptoms, symptomatic adverse events, and overall side effect burden. It's kind of these five components. And what you mentioned, the PRO CTCAE, which is a patient-reported version of the CTCAE, you know, grading that we use in oncology, is part of that symptomatic adverse events. And so um, there's a couple of studies that I've been working on where, you know, you basically can use some of the promise instruments to look at physical functioning, role functioning, you know, there's single item questions you can look at, look at overall side effect burden, you know, questions that are like, you know, how affected are you by the side effects of your treatment? But incorporating the PRO CTCAE can be great to look at specific symptoms you think are from the therapy that you're testing. Again, using promise still as part of the construct, but, you know, it, it is still a little bit ill-defined, right? Because the issue with this tolerability construct, at least in my view, is, you know, there's aspects of, of um, of quality of life that we may be missing, right? Like physical function, role function are important, but they don't reflect, for example, emotional well-being. You know, you know some of the uh, mental health components, which obviously are super important, and they also don't reflect things like financial toxicity. You know, about knowing that we know the financial toxicity probably drives financial toxicity, meaning you know the financial distress that a patient may get from treatment, getting to the hospital, any number of financial, you know, stressors related to their cancer therapy, we know that affects quality of life um, in, in a deleterious way too. So, you know, again, this is under development right now in the PRO sphere, but PRO CTCAE is a way to start to look at some of these individual components that, you know, might be driven by new therapies. Agreed. Totally agreed with this. I learned a lot from this and I think I'll add to the audience that it's not as burdensome of a question battery as you might think it is yes. just asking someone you know, like how bad like what is the severity of the symptom but you know how much did it interfere with you and I think also getting a sense of you know the the fact that those two don't always correlate is uh, pretty compelling and shows us how much we really don't understand about the patient experience unless we ask about it yeah and and you're bringing up a great point which is right these PROCTCA or men are beat they're like single you know one or two adding questions you can kind of pull from a bank and customize it but you know, there's really a super important need for good qualitative research within the PRO sphere, especially, sphere, especially in blood cancers, right? Because, you know, the issues with these new therapies is that, you know, CTCAE, and there's actually a lot of research on this, clinician assessed symptoms do not reflect very well what patients report often are underestimated, um, or the severity is underestimated, especially for more subjective symptoms. Um, and so, you know, really doing good focus groups, semi-structured interviews, talking to patients who have undergone these therapies and understanding what the burden of symptoms was for them, as well as for their caregivers, you know, and publishing those data is extremely informative for us to then decide, okay, this is the lived experience of patients who've gone through this new CAR-T therapy or bispecific or whatever. Let's make sure that the questions that we choose on any of these instruments really reflect what patients are actually experiencing. This is particularly important, for example, you mentioned fatigue, you know, as a lymphoma doc, you know, fatigue is one of the most common symptoms in aggressive lymphomas, chronic lymphomas and survivorship, but fatigue is, is obviously really difficult to understand. And so there's a number of researchers that look at kind of fatigue as a symptom cluster. How is fatigue different in a chronic lymphoma patient versus a survivor of Hodgkin lymphoma versus someone who's undergoing current, you know, intensive induction for DLDCL? you know, really some good qualitative work to understand how those are all different and how we need to customize our PROs for those is, is, is huge. I mean, it, it's paramount. It's critical. Agreed. 
And I'll just throw a shout out to the word you mentioned that I'm glad you did is caregiver. And I think for Blood Cancer <laughs> Awareness Month, that's quite relevant, especially because of the intensity of our therapies and transplant CAR-T. And I think the caregiver experiences, we're kind of figuring out, I mean, both you and I have anecdotes that caregivers tell us about, oh, but yeah, it's yeah, studying yeah. that in a more systematic way in what they go through and, you know, the dyad or the patient caregiver, how that evolves over the course of these therapies is super important for us yeah. to kind of better understand. And the great thing is the Promise Instruments include some stuff for caregivers. Actually, in the pediatric and AYA population, there's a whole patient and then patient proxy, right? That's extremely that. important, um, you know, especially in the cellular therapy and CAR-T space. There was a great abstract at ASH last year looking at, like, the caregiver and patient overall burden, quality of life, and, like, outpatient versus inpatient, inpatient transplant, which showed, you know, some very interesting differences um, that, you know, I think we have to consider as we start to think about outpatient CAR-T, you know, and all the stuff that's coming down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, maybe one question I will ask just about, you know, we talked about survey burden briefly is kind of like the yes. downside of these. And then I guess, you know, promise, maybe I can, uh, what your thoughts are. I recall that promise is available in different languages and technically they don't care if you submit it electronically or by paper. I mean, can you speak to, you know, that, like how you think a good PRO instrument should practically be implemented to pay? Yeah, yeah, great question. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of electronic PROs, just my experience. Well, I'll, there's two ways I'll answer your question. I'll never forget, I was in a, one of the, um, I was in a meeting with patient advocates um, and, you know, talking about, because, you know, the question often comes up is, is survey burden, right? Like how many surveys is too much? How many questions are too much? And what actually was really interesting talking to patient advocates is many of them said, we don't, we don't really care how many questions we answer, you know, as long as, you know, we're aware of what's going to be going on in the frequency, because a lot of them really said to me, you know, we, the fact that you're asking about our symptoms and our symptom burden, like we want to provide that information. I, I'll never forget. I was like, oh yeah, you know, like, and that's also why it's so important that patient advocates and patients need to be incorporated into the design of PRO studies, because, you know, people who've lived through CAR-T, they'll tell you, listen, I don't want to be filling out surveys when it's day two and I'm having cytokine release syndrome, right? You know, like we have to communicate with, with our patients about kind of what their expectations are about how much surveys, how much they should be looking at our surveys. They should be helping us determine kind of what the frequency is like. But many of them said that they're willing to answer lots of questions if it's really getting down into kind of what their symptom burden is like. Um, I think the other component of, um, you know, electronic PROs, as I was saying, is that, you know, I think most PRO studies need to have a hybrid model, right? Because the electronic PROs, I think, are great. You know, through REDCap or any number of systems, they can email directly to patients and patients can literally fill them out and they go directly into a REDCap. There's even automatic scoring PROs in REDCap that when the patient fills out their survey, it automatically populates a score. I mean, it can make it really easy to do some really, you know, dynamic kind of rapid research. Um, but the other uh, component to it is that, you know, you got to include, you can also text people, by the way, it's a lot, they do a lot of the AYA oh, population built-in texting for, you know, for, for kids and AYA patients. But, you know, there's got to be a hybrid model still, you know, because you don't want to miss patients who don't have access to, you know, appropriate electronic means to participate in these studies. And so you have to really make a concerted effort to make sure that you are capturing all of the PROs, but I agree. The nice thing about the promise instruments is that for the um, other, you know, for other languages other than English to be even put out there, they do some at least initial tier one internal validation of the quality of the question. So that's different than a lot of the other instruments, you know? And so when you use those instruments, you can kind of feel more confident that you really are capturing what you're capturing. 
taken into a limitation of still that, you know, larger validation cohorts are always needed. So I think a hybrid model is always good, but I tend to favor electronic PROs because I find a lot of patients um, in this day and age, even older folks have no problem doing EPROs. And I, I think the response rates, especially in a trial setting can, can be quite good. Real world's a little bit of a different story, you know, because if you're just, you know, blasting out PROs to anyone in your hospital system, you know, that's a little bit different, but that's, there's a whole field of implementation science looking at how to, you know, how to improve that. Agreed. This is really, really true. And I agree. I agree. Yeah. The, the digital divide is a one other kind of theoretical spectrum with the EPROs, but exactly as you said, I think if you have a hybrid model in place or have a way to approach these patients, then I think that's quite manageable and another plug for REDCap because it's yeah. multi-university academic healthcare centers have it and promise a lot of the instruments are already built for REDCap. You can import them in readily. So I think for fellows, junior faculty like ourselves who are interested in kind of incorporating PROs in a meaningful way. Once you've talked with your patient advocate, once you've talked with your biostatistician, once you've gotten IRB approval, I think REDCap is a promise instruments are a nice way to go. And the other, the other plug I'll give is that automatic survey scheduling is built into REDCap. And so it's been, it's been truly wonderful um, as an investigator because you can literally consent people, you know, virtually as long as it's good with your IRB and then once they fill out their consent form, it automatically sends them their first survey. And then three months later, it automatically sends the next one. I mean, you can really design it to be a fully kind of automated system, which, especially if you're looking at large data sets or you're doing prospective observational stuff, can be really powerful. Totally agree. And especially as with everybody, especially when there's like a you know shortage of clinical research coordinators, you yes, yes, budget yes. things in, I think taking a lot of the, the, the logistics and automating them for these PROs is great. Wonderful. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Major. This was very, very illuminating for all of us. I know we're up against the 30-minute mark now. Any closing thoughts or things you want to say about PROs going forward? Uh, yeah. So if you're interested in incorporating PROs into your, into your study, for any of you investigators out there, talk to, talk to patients, but especially try to find someone who actually, you know, does PROs. This is not just a job security plug, but, but truthfully, I mean, we're out there and, you know, we want to help you with your studies and help, you know, really generate some meaningful PRO work. The one thing I will say is that we're getting into the era now where I, I mean, it's already happened, drugs that have been, or medical therapies that have been approved because they improve overall quality of life, you know, in, in the hematologic malignancy space, this is so critically important, but Talk to your patients, talk to patient advocates, talk to biostatisticians, and talk to people who are interested in PROs, you know, investigators like me, and we can help you, you know, incorporate your studies and make sure that you have a really robust study design. Agreed. I love it. And I will say, obviously, we've spent the entire half hour talking about PROs and research settings, PRO and real world clinical settings, I think it's a topic for another day. Oh, totally. It's <laughs> been shown to improve survival in the solid oncology world, and hopefully someday will be shown here, but we have a ways to go before we get there. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Major, thank you again for your time. And thanks for everyone for tuning in. Again, my name is Dr. Banerjee. I'm on the, the board of the Oncology Data Advisor. And it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you, with you and having all of you listen in. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Banerjee and Dr. Major. This is a really valuable conversation and thank everybody learned a lot. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.